more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Dusty from the Nuclear Science and Engineering Department here at Oregon State University. Welcome to the show, Dusty. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. So if you were tuned in just a couple minutes ago, you may have heard us giving a little bit of an intro to the program tonight. Uh, We are going to be talking about nuclear energy, nuclear engineering, uh, modern nuclear reactors. But before we get into all of that, uh, Dusty, I'd like to hear a little bit about how you got into this field and kind of what your journey was to Oregon State, to engineering. Yeah, yeah. So my story's a little bit uh, eclectic. Um, I uh, I took some time off after um, high school to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and ended up working um, different jobs uh, nat- in the natural gas field, um, and I, d- I also worked some fishing jobs along the way. Um, and uh, it wasn't until I decided to go back to school for engineering when I really found kind of my true passion um, and it was, it had to do with, um, a sort of, uh, environmental disaster that happened in 2015, August, 2015, in which we had, uh, 3 million, uh, gallons of heavy metal laden water, um, just fall into or drain into the Animus, which is, um, a river that flows through the, my hometown of Trango. And it was a huge event. It made national headlines, um, and they're still actually cleaning up uh, the water that drained in there today. So I kind of found that um, maybe I could work towards solving some practical problems that have to do with uh, environmental disasters and issues that are related to um, sort of humanity in general. So that's kind of how I found my uh, calling into engineering. Yeah, so you you mentioned during our pre-interview this mine spill, the Gold King mine spill in Colorado, and I had actually never heard of it before, though I'm sure it made the news um, where I lived as well. Um, but that is, I mean, it seems like a pretty devastating event. Uh, heavy metals leached into the water, effects on the um, wildlife in the area, as well as the communities surrounding the river. And yeah, it sounds like 
Adrian knows someone who's working on um, some of the remediation still. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, they recommended a, a law review article uh, by Clifford Via. So I'm reading here approximately 3 million gallons of contaminated mine, mine water was released into the drainage of the Animus River. Um, later on in the law review article, they also mentioned that this is approximately uh, three days of high spring runoff flow. So while the event itself was pretty catastrophic because the river was bright orange and yellow, like you can't miss that. Um, it's also an ongoing issue, uh, especially related to this mine. It was was the largest gold and silver mine um, in the country for a while. But you that was your backyard. Um, and seeing that really pushed you towards uh, this movement of being interested in, in energy and energy safety and kind of how we are getting our energy, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just kind of um, meeting with uh, a lot of the sort of technical-minded um, engineers who were working on like active remediation for some of the acid mine drainage that was pouring out of these open mines. Because in the Animus watershed, there's more than 200 open mines that are basically always just draining water out of them. So water comes in due to rain into the mountain through these different cracks and fissures and portals. And then it drains through these, these, these mountains and it basically, um, the iron and, uh, sulfide and iron sulfide sort of separate and you get this like super like acidic sulfuric acid in the water, which causes all the heavy metals to precipitate out and all the bad ones like aluminum, arsenic, zinc, um, Basically everything, it precipitates out into the streams. So the only way to sort of treat the water, um, well, there's several different ways, but sort of the heaviest way is just by using like um, uh, just quick lye and you just have these huge like multi-million dollar remediation systems that treat the water, just change the pH and then they filter all the heavy metals out and then they sort of analyze the microinvertebrates and the fish and just try to get a good understanding of how the health of the streams are after they remediate it. Wow. So, yeah, so so I, I, I focused on sort of what I thought was interesting was they had these sort of sort of needs to take what was worked really well at the lab scale and uh, like electrolysis um, and then basically scale them up to be used for um, bigger sort of high flow rate systems where you might have like different like temperatures, different flow rates, different metal loading in like 9,000 feet elevation up in Silverton. So like scaling up is definitely the engineering challenge with those systems. So that's kind of my, yeah. So that's, that's how I got into like studying like engineered systems. Yeah. So you then went and you got your bachelor's in engineering and then you ended up here in nuclear engineering. Why nuclear? Yeah. So, um, I, had a pretty close connection with um, a lot of the professors at Fort Lewis College where I got my undergrad degree. Um, and they had a pretty strong grasp of the United States' uh, electricity portfolio, uh, like where we're getting our electricity to turn on these lights. Um, and so I, I kind of just learned from them. And I, I, took a, I took classes where we went through the entire um, gamut of different uh, energy sources all the way from wind, solar, hydro. Um, like we had tidal, we had wave energy, we had um, biomass, we had basically everything. And we just kind of looked at sort of 
the advantages, disadvantages, uh, feasibility of each technology, efficiencies, kind of everything. And I had a professor guest lecture that class and he talked about nuclear energy. And uh, after listening to him talk about like separating atoms and um, basically the energy density that comes out of nuclear, um, I, I was really interested. And so I started working for him. Yeah. So you kind of touched on it a little bit there, but before we get into the kind of specifics about your research, I think a lot of our audience would probably benefit, I know I would benefit from hearing some basic definitions. So when we talk about nuclear energy, nuclear uh, reactions, what what is that? Can you give us the, the definition? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, so you have fission and you have fusion. Fission, you separate atoms. Typically, those atoms are higher Z, so they have a lot more uh, nucleons in the top of the um, nucleus of the atom. So um, sort of you could think of it as like just a really big bundle um, of uh, neutrons and protons that are sort of all connected by this strong nuclear force. And uh, if you hit it with uh, a neutron fast enough, you can uh, release, uh, liberate a lot of um, energy, and that comes out as... Uh, you know, fission products moving very quickly, comes out as gamma radiation, comes out as fast neutrons that are also traveling. And so those fast neutrons that come out of these big atoms like uranium, plutonium, thorium, um, pol polonium, there's a bunch of them, um, those fast neutrons get used in other nuclear reactors. So um, we keep track of neutrons really well uh, in nuclear production because that really dictates... Um, controlling the stability of a nuclear reactor. So nuclear energy then comes from, it's a very highly potent energy source. It sounds like a lot of energy. Uh, so then how do nuclear reactors um, actually work, I guess, to bring this energy from uh, the, the fission that occurs to actually powering a generator or a grid or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So just sort of broad strokely speaking, because I don't want to get bogged down into too many of the details, uh, for, yeah, for the sake of simplicity, I would say that so you have um, a, you have a bundle of straws, right? And you have coolant traveling through those straws, and the coolant is basically uh, transferring the heat energy um, uh, from from the hot core to a lower temperature region, um, so it's non-isothermal, and 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 basically that hot coolant basically goes, and it can go multiple different ways. Um, you can go um, into another heat exchanger, like, um, or you could go straight, if it's a water reactor, you could go straight into a boiler system where you um, basically uh, vaporize the water. And um, so you increase its entropy, or its enthalpy, sorry. And so you have high pressure, high temperature. You run that through a turbine, and that turbine will take that heat energy and transfer it into electrical energy. We call that work. Um, and then it's lower pressure and outside, so after it's at a lower pressure, you then run it through a condenser and then you push it through a pump and then you push it, the cold, low pressure coolant back through the core of the reactor. So they call that a Rakine cycle. It's basically how um, most all of the power plants in the United States work. Um, it's just, um, yeah, transferring the heat through, um, through liquids. But so we can talk about the subtlety of like how like fast reactors are a little bit different. Uh, I think that would be interesting to talk about if you want to. I, I definitely want to get there. Uh, but before, I think it's worth uh, kind of teasing out the kind of 
it, it seems kind of rude gold goldbergy right where you uh you somehow heat up water in your case it's with efficient reaction you heat up water to generate steam that steam is high pressure to spin a turbine that turbine has a has is made of a bunch of Typically, there's magnets on the outside with a copper core. When you spin magnets around a copper core, that's what generates electricity. And in a, in a nuclear reactor, that's how you spin the turbine. But in a wind turbine, you use wind to spin a, spin some copper or to spin some magnets around a line of copper, and that's how you create electricity. In a hydropower plant, you're you know pushing water through a turbine, and like all these ways that we create energy. We're just spinning copper around some metal, uh, some uh, some magnets, or vice versa, and <laughs> this is just a really efficient way of doing that. But it's the same process, and like for coal-fired power plants, right? They just generate steam to spin a turbine. Um, but it's that fundamental piece that's pretty similar across all, all of them, except for solar and uh, not even geothermal. Geothermal is the same thing. Yeah, and uh, I know it can get pretty complicated, but I think one thing that kind of surprised me in talking to you at first was it's really not you're using this nuclear reaction to heat some liquid to generate power like that's seems to be at its core kind of pardon my pun there what it is um yeah and so yeah do you want to talk a little bit about the fast reactor and what makes that a little bit different sure yeah so um so sort of um so most of the or most all of the power plants that exist in the United States right now are what they call like thermal nuclear reactors. So they basically, um, they use slow moving neutrons to induce fission upon the uranium. And part of that is because the neutron cross section or the propensity for neutrons to be absorbed into uranium is pretty high when those, um, neutrons are moving very slow. Um, but, Another part is water tends to be a really strong moderator and it basically attenuates the speed of the sodium or the, the um, neutrons down to a pretty low level. And uh, so what that does is it kind of dictates that you can't have um, sort of fast neutron like reactions. So, so there are some elements. So like we, we haven't really introduced sort of the different types of... Um, like fissile fuels yet but so for like light water reactors you have uranium-235 which is seven tenths of a percent um in natural uranium so it's a very small amount so we have to enrich it so um in doing so that takes a lot of energy and intensity so it's kind of a little bit more expensive in terms of like energy production carbon emissions from from that process but with um breeder reactors you can basically you have a spectrum of fast neutrons within your core. And those fast neutrons can um, cause transmutation um, of certain elements like natural uranium U-238 into plutonium-239, which can be used as fuel. So what you can do there is you can actually unleash a lot more, unleash a lot more energy on the fuel that you have, and you don't have to reprocess it. And so that's... Uh, that's what's cool. There's also other elements that we can use like thorium and stuff, but you need like, you need like neutrons that are traveling really, really fast. And the only way to really do that is by having a coolant that is not a moderator. And typically, um, coolants that work better for that are like super high temperature gas, uh, heavy water, um, which is like deuterium instead of hydrogen. Um, molten salts can do that. And then there's also liquid sodiums, like liquid metals, like 
um, lead, lead bismuth, liquid sodium. Um, so yeah, there's a bunch of different types of uh, advanced reactor fluids that you could use for fast reactors. So now that we've kind of defined nuclear reactors and some of the um, components of them, I kind of want to take a, a few steps back and um, maybe kind of talk about why nuclear energy is such a viable solution to the energy crisis that we have currently, and maybe talk a little bit about that and wh- why it's a why it's a promising alternative to other sources of energy. Sure. Yeah. So I mean. Like, I think the sort of just the simplest way to explain it is like um, a chemical reaction, you separate electrons that are orbiting the outer shell of atoms. And those are typically very far away, relatively speaking. But if you can separate an atom, you unleash like hundreds of millions of times the amount of energy. So in, in engineering, we look a lot at energy density. So how much energy can you get per unit mass? Um, and if we care about carbon, right, it's going to be, uh, you know, energy released per unit um, CO2 emitted. And that CO2 is through the entire life cycle of the reactor. So um, nuclear energy just has the capability of um, really having sort of a low, um, like, CO2 emission per unit energy. Um, so, and just part of it's just the physics of how the reaction works. It's, it's so much more... Um, efficient than just trying to like do chemical reactions like burning hydrocarbons so it's very efficient it's a very potent source of energy and one thing that i was surprised to learn is that it's actually safer than a lot of other uh, kinds of ways that we get energy and that might be contrary to what the popular perception kind of is about nuclear um so Maybe can you take us a little bit through the history of the perception of nuclear energy? I know there have been some some big events that have kind of shaped public image, uh, but you know what would you say to kind of dispel some of those those myths that kind of perpetuate about the safety of it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, just in general, uh, I think I don't want to be offensive here, but like humanity has not been um, super good at uh, evaluating sort of risk of certain things. Um, And it's kind of hard to kind of deconvolute the complexity of engineered systems and and try to see exactly like what the odds are of you actually getting hurt by an energy source. Um, And and part of the problem that I think people struggle with with nuclear energy is um, the sort of, the sort of, um, extremely high risk things that can happen with nuclear reactors um, sort of dissuade people from even look like taking it under consideration. And it's really easy for people who are against it to go after it, even though the probability of that event happening is beyond extremely impossible. (laughs) Like, I mean, it's possible, but it's like, we're talking like you'd have to get struck by lightning many, many times over again for it to be like an actual event that happens. So, um, and when you say event that happens, you're talking about like a nuclear meltdown. Yeah. Yeah. So like typically what people look at, so, so, and, and pretty much, uh, every different type of, um, reactor they look at, they, they do, um, uh, 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 like a risk analysis, uh, a PRA, a probability risk assessment where they say, okay, these are all the things that could possibly happen. Like 
we could have um, no water in the core. We could have a pump seize up and fail. Um, we could have boiling in the core, um, like all these different types of things. And they try to, they do like, what's the odds of that actually happening? And then what's the, what's the repercussions of that? And, um, what they find is like, uh, the probability is really low. Like typically the, um, United States has a lot of very strict requirements that are imposed by the NRC, um, nuclear regulatory committee. Uh, commission and they basically say that like we have to have uh, pressure vessels that uh, prevent release of radiological materials um, and most all of our calculations are um, very conservative um, and so so yeah it's kind of kind of interesting that you know like we we have so many conversations about the risk of nuclear energy but nobody's really talking about the impacts that like other energy sources have like coal and wind and you know stuff like that. So this is a good a good time to uh, Grace wrote a fabulous blog. If you <laughs> if you haven't read it, it's on our blog. And I, I'm I'm going to read a portion here from a uh, where it describes the mortality rate per kilowatt hour of energy from different sources. And coal tops the list with 100,000 deaths per trillion kilowatt hour. Uh, and nuclear energy is at the bottom with 0 0.1 0.1 uh, deaths per kilowatt hour. Uh, in the middle is natural gas with about 4,000 deaths, hydro with 1,400, and wind with 150. So by two orders of magnitude, um, nuclear energy is still safer even than than wind. Um, and it's just maybe also to help put some brass tacks on here. Nuclear energy currently accounts for 20% of our energy portfolio, which uh, makes up uh, about the same amount of all green energy combined. So this is uh, wind, solar, and, uh, and and hydroelectricity. So nuclear by itself makes up a substantial chunk of, uh, as Dusty would describe, our energy portfolio. If for the nuclear hawks, if you want to get rid of that, um, well, then you we have to find out where to get 20% of our remaining energy production. Um, and at least what happened in uh, Germany, uh, this is kind of salient because of what's happening on the on the Ukraine border. Geopolitics is wild. But Germany got rid of a lot of their nuclear reactors, and, and the way they replace it is with natural gas. And now they're highly dependent on, on Russia because Russia gives them all their natural gas. Uh, so just from a, uh, from a pure energy perspective, nuclear energy produces a lot of our energy. From a national security perspective, we would be, I would argue, much better off if we didn't depend on fossil fuels, imported fossil fuels for the last, you know, three decades, um, if we uh, really uh, took up the advantages that nuclear has to offer. And Germany is in, in many ways kind of feeling feeling the dangers of that because, uh, well, we're, we're, we're speaking on <laughs> uh, the, the last day of, of January and uh, who knows what's happening on the Ukraine-Russia border. But Germany is really scared because it's winter there and they get all of their natural gas from Russia. <laughs> And they used to have a lot more nuclear power, so they didn't need this dependency on, a, on another foreign power. So all that to say, for um, for all the things that people might be scared about with nuclear, there are always trade-offs with any energy source. Um, but, I, you know, I'm, I think I'm, I'm in your camp, Dusty, here, that nuclear probably got a bad rap for a long time. But um, it seems like it's on the up and up, and you're helping to make that happen with some of your research. 
So yeah. if you're, sorry, I'm just going to plug right here. If you're just <laughs> tuning in, you're listening to KBBR Corvallis, Inspiration Dissemination. And we are here talking with Dusty, a PhD student in nuclear engineering. And that was a great segue, Adrian, because in the next part of the show, I'd like to kind of get into your research a little bit more. So uh, nuclear is much safer than people kind of give it credit for. And you're kind of playing a role in, in the development of that. Um, so tell us about your research. Sure, yeah. So um, so we talked a little bit about fast neutron reactors. And, and like, really, I mean, when we, when we focus on developing the next generation of nuclear reactors, we're trying to make sure that they're better in every accord. Um, they're safer. Uh, they have higher efficiencies. Um, they can last longer. Um, uh, we... Um, they're basically at a lower proliferation uh, risk. So, so we're kind of making sure that um, these reactors can, can basically be used safely. Um, and, and so what I study is, um, and it's kind of a, kind of a, a strong uh, opinion that I hold lo- loosely, is uh, liquid sodium reactors uh, are sort of one of the best technologies that are out there. Um, it's one of the most mature, it has over 500 years of reactor operating experience. Um, and it, it, it's safer for a lot of reasons. One of them is uh, nuclear reactors run hot. Uh, typically, they run around 400 to 500 degrees Celsius. Um, and structural materials can handle that, but water boils at 100 Celsius. So really, the only way to keep, um, keep these reactors running uh, in, in the water phase is by increasing the pressure we're running it as a boiling reactor, a BWR. And that's similar to what, like, like the RBMK-1000 was a boiling water reactor at Chernobyl. Um, and, and they're sort of a little bit more tricky. Part of the reason is because um, you have a positive void coefficient, which means that, like, if you, in certain boiling regions, you have a lot less water. Um, and when you have less water, the um, neutrons are traveling through less mass and they're attenuating less, so you have, like, hot spots within your core. Um, so, so boiling water reactors are a little bit more challenging, harder to model on the neutronic side, and uh, just in general kind of a little bit more tricky. And pressurized water reactors um, require really thick containment vessels. Um, sometimes they're on the order of a foot thick of forged steel, and there's only really like three places in the world that you can produce those, uh, and they're really expensive. So we ship them around. The carbon cost of producing them is astronomical. Um, and so really like pressure like low pressure um nuclear reactors make a lot of sense and sodium sort of lends itself to that because sodium melts at 97 degrees celsius and it boils at 883 degrees celsius that is a huge range yeah so we say that that has a really wide margin of of safety because the outlet temperature of a nuclear reactor is around 550 degrees celsius so you you have a long ways to go before you start boiling sodium and it when Typically, uh, other problems would, would arise, and you can cool the reactor down um, before you actually have boiling at the core. So, so those other problems are like above 600 degrees Celsius, you have like plastic deformation of your structural material because of creep. So, um, but yeah, so anyways, long story short, nuclear react, like sodium-cooled nuclear reactors uh, run at atmospheric pressure, so you don't have to use as much materials. Um, and they're, they, again, like we talked about with, uh, water being a moderator, sodium, uh, basically, um, 
is transparent to neutrons as it travels through it. So you can have fast neutrons. Um, and, and that allows for, for uh, a lot of neat things like breeding. So you can actually produce fuel um, from fertile fuel from which is really handy in like reducing uh, reducing the amount of fuel you have. So um, yeah, so so my research specifically is on uh, it's basically how does liquid sodium behave with structural materials. So um, basically the the way thermodynamics works is uh, atoms want to sort of spread out and uh, that, you know, that's the case for like, you know, our, our basically the cosmos, everything's spreading out. Everything wants to be different. It's entropy. Well, what we like to do as engineers is take, uh, really atoms that want to be spread out and we like, we make them stick together, right? That's what metal is. It's basically separating the sort of iron and clumping it together. And, and so that's what we're doing with structural material and we can do it and make very corrosion resistant materials. Um, but when you take a solid material and you put it in a liquid metal, you have sort of this uh, this phenomenon where you have like dissolution of your structural alloys into your sodium. So my job is to sort of look at how does that happen? How fast does it happen? And is that a problem for uh, like nuclear reactors? And it turns out that liquid sodium is actually very non-corrosive to structural alloys. So um, that's good news. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of new and innovative structural alloys that are coming out and being sort of designed and, and implemented. And so my job is to sort of like look for um, look for areas that might be challenging or might be problematic uh, with structural alloys in liquid sodium. For example, if you take a if you take a material, you put it in sodium and then you apply a certain load, you can get what they call liquid metal embrittlement, where um, your structural alloy will actually crack. And the best example of this would be, you take uh, gallium, which you can buy on Amazon or whatever, and you can put it on like, <laughs> like a tin can, and you basically rough the surface, you put it on, and it basically diffuses into the aluminum very quickly, and then it turns into paper. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's liquid and metal, metal embrittlement. Seems like a cool party trick. <laughs> or alchemy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or you could do it to titanium locks too. Um, but so what, what, what that means is you're basically like reducing the structural integrity or, or they call it fracture toughness of the metal. And um, what that does is it basically makes it not useful as a structural material anymore. So if that was a big issue with sodium, we would know it by now. But we're continuing to test it in different types of alloys, and that's kind of one area that's um, pretty new in like the advanced sort of nuclear energy space for liquid metals. For next week, we actually have uh, another guest. Uh, he is in the materials engineering major, and he is also mixing some different elements to create new novel metals uh, and structural materials. Um, be sure to listen to that because he actually has two world records. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I know, pretty pretty wild. Um, but nonetheless, this um, kind of constant testing and checking to make sure that the um, the situation and environment that your steel or new alloys will be exposed to in this, you know, potentially higher temperature 
environment. You're making sure that all of that checks out far beforehand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And like we have a pretty strong understanding of how these systems work. Like I said, we have uh, over 500 years of reactor operating experience with liquid sodium systems. And these, these reactors are everywhere. Like Russia has them. Um, the United States used to have them back in like when we had EBR1 and EBR2. Um, but as of right now, we kind of have to look at uh, look at other countries in order to be able to do this research. And um, so, yeah, uh, India has re these reactors. Um, and yeah, so, so we're kind of at this place where it's like, if we are going to invest in nuclear energy, um, we should probably do it now. Like, kind of makes a lot of sense because we don't want to get behind on sort of the international stage. Um, and uh, the, the thing with any type of research is if you don't have, um, if you don't have a community of involved individuals and you only rely on literature, it gets really hard to communicate and it's very slow. <laughs> so part of the thing is just trying to keep a collective body of scientists on like online and on salary so they actually can help solve some of these problems. Otherwise it just gets more and more challenging. That's, yeah. It's hard to uh, convince Professor Emeritus who, you know, no longer does this work but did 30 years ago, hard to convince this person to, like, come back and teach the new crop of, <laughs> of folks what, what they learned, you know, from the from the, the 50s in, in the naval research era. Um, but instead of looking backwards, let's look forwards. Uh, what does the, what do you hope the future of nuclear energy looks like? Well, I mean, <laughs> ideally, I think it would be really amazing to see, um, huge growth in like fourth generation nuclear reactors um, it would be great to see sort of larger cities that are um, very power hungry receive um, commissioning of um, large nuclear reactors and small cities like the town that I'm from in Durango I think it would be an amazing thing to just imagine like a sort of a, a smaller nuclear reactor that could be used to power that entire city without having to transport electricity all the way from Loveland, Colorado, that's coming from a coal-fired power plant. It would be really cool to, you know, see, see these small nuclear reactors. So, yeah, I think um, <laughs> that's the dream, right, to be able to see sort of nuclear energy integrated into um, sort of our renewable and alternative energy portfolio in a, in a meaningful way that allows for sort of a nice uh, complement on providing um, carbon-free electricity for um, society. One thing that is probably worth mentioning to our listeners, going back to the to the energy portfolio, nuclear is is one of the few things that can function as baseload. So, you know, it, the, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow and the, the tides, uh, you know, you, you need some amount of substantial kind of foundation and renewables can't really do that unless we build out a heck of a lot of batteries. And if you know anything about mining batteries, going back to the Gold King mine, or mining heavy metals, um, there is no good way to mine. <laughs> so, you know, I'm. Uh, it's just another reason to kind of rethink if, if you've been very, like, anti-nuclear, anti just to kind of reset expectations of, what what do we need in this energy transition and what can nuclear really hold for us? But um, with that, I believe we're coming to the end of our interview. 
Yeah, I think so. So one of the traditions we have here on Inspiration Dissemination is we will ask our guests to impart a piece of wisdom or advice. Uh, the microphone is yours, Dusty. What would you like to What would you like to say to the world today? Yeah, I think um, I think there's this sort of grandiose image of what science and scientific publications uh, is like from sort of a non-scientific um, individual, especially a kid who's growing up. So I, I think we, we kind of never think that we're actually going to be people who are making a huge impact on society until you put in the effort to get there. So, so I would say that um, scientific breakthroughs, innovation, and new discoveries um, don't come from people who are not necessarily talented, just talented, but it, it takes, um, it takes a large level of, of creativity and work ethic. And I think part of creativity is just iterating over and over again. So, um, I would say that just go for it and, and work hard. And if you put your mind to it, you can, um, you can make breakthroughs. Love that. Our last tradition is we ask you for a song to outro you to. So what song did you choose and why? Uh, I chose a song called Fernando. Um, and the reason why I chose that song is because um, I was rock climbing in Moab, Utah over Christmas break. And I was standing on the white line of the highway and I was touching the wall and I saw this amazing climb. And so I, I climbed it and then I found out later it was called Fernando. So I looked up the song and I fell in love with it. Nice. Well, here's an ode to that song. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, and for listeners, uh, we're on every Sunday. So if you like what you hear, you can check us out again. And with that, here is Fernando by Abba. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>